The Clean Power Hour is brought to you by CPS America, the maker of North America's number one three-phase string inverter. With over six gigawatts shipped in the U.S., the CPS America product lineup includes three-phase string inverters ranging from 25 to 275 kW. Their flagship inverter, the CPS 250-275, is designed to work with solar plants ranging from 2 megawatts to 2 gigawatts. The 250-275 pairs well with CPS America's exceptional data communication, controls, and energy storage solutions. Go to chintpowersystems.com to find out more. Welcome to the Clean Power Hour Live. I'm Tim Montague, your host. Check out all of our content at cleanpowerhour.com. Please give us a rating and a review on Apple and Spotify and subscribe to our YouTube channel. I want to welcome my co-host, Commercial Solar Guide to the show. Welcome, John. Hey, Tim. How? Uh, I hope everything's going well. Uh, haven't seen you for a few weeks. I was on vacation. I went to Australia. You were asking about it. I saw solar everywhere, rooftops all over. It was cool. Even had my girlfriend telling me, hey, John, solar, because I just say the word solar out randomly when I'm driving in the car. Probably annoys my girlfriend, but so be it. Uh, but now in Australia, she was going solar, 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 because I was driving and I was scared to hit cars because I'm on the other side of the road. So I'm like super zoned in on my driving and she's pointing out solar left and right. It was pretty cool. Yes. Yeah. For, for those of you who don't know, uh, the penetration of solar in Australia is much higher. I don't know what that statistic is, but it's at least 3x what it is in the United States. And there are various reasons for this. Uh and, and it's funny, John, because I talked to somebody in Australia, gosh, like a year and a half ago, and he was like, here's the secret. We build really cheap, crappy solar in Australia. So I don't know. Um, you know, the soft costs are half of what they are uh, in the U.S. In Australia, the soft costs are cheaper. And equipment, you can imagine the equipment's not traveling as far to get to Australia either, right? It's coming from China or Southeast Asia, and it's a short hop across the, uh, whatever that strait is called to, uh, to Australia. So there's, there's a variety of reasons, but, um, and there are also geeks for solar technology, right? With, uh, New South Wales, isn't it? The University of New South Wales that does a lot of R and D. I, I'm going to put something else as the biggest driver for why their residential solar is so um, so well priced, and okay. this uh, was based on you know premonitions and held priors uh, that I've learned slowly over time. Uh, but I uh, on our last day we were in Sydney, we were walking on this cool beach, and then south of it is this beautiful set of rocks, and you know it's just very picturesque, and it was like all rainy and stuff and windy, so it was just everything was cool. Um, and, uh, we, uh, girlfriend went into the water and met an electrician, just started talking with them as a couple. Um, guy does more O and M, uh, his wife helps with the office, manage, brings in deals, does other things. And, uh, they don't do solar, but they did. They are this, uh, specifically he'd done solar. They weren't uh, a couple then nobody cares about this on the show, but that's the human touch we bring here to him. Uh, and so I asked him, I said, Hey, have you ever done solar? And we started chatting about it. And he said, yes. And he, and I asked him to verify. I said, Hey, when you uh, do a solar project, can you really just show up the next day and install? He goes, yeah, of course. And you install right away and you plug into the grid right there and you turn it on and then you file out, fill out the paperwork afterward. And so Tim, if you could show up to a business tomorrow and start installation and it would roughly work and there'd be no issues with it, how much different would your sales process be? How much less paperwork would be necessary if you well, were? I mean, you're talking about shortening this one thing and that is the, basically the permitting. And that would be a good thing, right? We get, we get bogged down in interconnection in the commercial solar space. We get bogged down in interconnection because interconnection? going into it, you don't know what the upgrades are or not that the grid operator is going to require. And that can yep. be a deal killer, Right. They could say, well, you need to upgrade our wires between here and there, and that's going to cost a million dollars. And you go, well, the whole solar project's only a million dollars, Mr. Grid Operator. What the heck? And so anyway, if are you saying that you, you can just do this, you could just build a solar facility 
And and then the interconnection study happens after the fact. Um, when you when you speak about a large commercial project, I am certain that there would be some limitations. Uh, I I don't explicitly know anything, yeah. uh, but I know that in the residential world, you literally install the very next day. Sure. You walk in, yeah. and if you're really a good fast company, and your install team happens to be trailing behind you, and you're the first sale of the day. You might have like, yeah, the team is literally trailing me, hoping I close a deal, and bam, install team shows up. Maybe that's not very efficient business to run there, but no, that's I mean, the, I, I, I do no, think all the team gets squished, everything gets squished, yeah, and that's a lot of cost of carrying people for ninety days and keeping payroll running for ninety days. I'm sure it's cheaper in some way, great, but solar's cheap anyway. Solar is meant to be replaceable. It's expensive and has to last 30 years when the cost is three times as much. If the cost is a third, eh, maybe slightly less over-engineered solar is better. There's definitely more efficiencies. If you can, if you can ease the permitting process, it's going to make the overall installation more efficient, and it will lower the soft cost. There's no doubt. Uh, it is interesting that the DOE's program to expedite permitting in the United States is struggling. Um, and I don't know the gory details of that, but yep. part of it is is how we have given local jurisdictions a ton of authority in the United yep. States. We don't have anything close to centralized authority making or decision making when it comes to the grid. We have local authority and that's a problem because those local authorities are like God um, and those are cities and towns and counties. And then, and then the grid operator is also like God, John. And, and I wonder, is that different in Australia? Because that is clearly antiquated. Like every solar and storage professional in America understands this, that our grid operators have too much control. It, did a, it was a good thing when we didn't have electricity, okay, and you needed standards, et cetera, right? That monopoly, that regulated monopoly model. But that model is completely antiquated, and it's and clearly the grid operator is not willing to change fast enough. That's why we have NEM 3.0 in California, and we killed the residential solar market in California. Like, go figure. Like, uh, it's it's one step forward, two steps back. Well, something about that. It's I, I don't know. Obviously, I'm a I'm a uh, vacation Australia expert. Yeah. Uh, as I was flying from the uh, from Melbourne to Tasmania, somebody on the airplane said, "Hey, how are you liking your travel?" I said, "Well, I'm biased because I've specifically chosen only to go to beautiful places. Thus, my perception of Australia is that all places are beautiful." And uh, a lady in front of us laughed. She goes, "Thank you so much for saying that about Australia." I'm like, <laughs> "Oh, it's great." So, you know, my bias is obviously showing, but, um, or my, and my low information. But, uh, you know, there's the larger projects, there's a much tighter cost structure. Um, uh, utility scale in Australia is cheaper than U.S. utility scale. And no, Tim, you mentioned it. I didn't see any of the accordion uh, solar installations in Northern Australia. Because I technically I wasn't in the northern Australia state, I was in a uh, Queensland, but which is northern area of Australia. Well, I'm glad you brought this up, okay? Yeah. Because <clears throat> there's a couple of things here. Uh, you're talking about five B. Check out five B. Yes. Check out five B. They're a factory installed uh, ground mount racking system where the panels are installed on the racking in a factory. Then they're folded up. It's like an accordion. It's an east-west system. And it's very low to ground. There's there's virtually no racking, right? The panels are just held together, and they're pre-wired in the factory. And then you drag a container out, and then drag this stuff out of the container, and it un unfolds onto the landscape. You end up with a very high ground cover ratio. A couple things, though. I'm an advisor to Luminous Robotics. Check out Luminous Robotics. They're targeting module installation for the tracker currently for trackers, which is 94% of ground-mount solar, utility-scale ground-mount solar in the United States. And then I'm getting all these data points, though. Um, you know, PEG is increasingly popular. There's a new PEG competitor called Planted. Uh, I had PEG on the show. 
I haven't had Planted on the show, but Plant is, is explicitly using robotics for module installation also. Peg is a very low to ground. They use rebar as racking. So it's like three feet off the ground. It's an east-west system, very high ground cover ratio. Great in the Caribbean, for example, where you have high wind loads. Um, and and so, but, but the data point that I really love about 5B, John, is that AES has partnered with them. They have formed a joint venture, and AES is one of the largest or the largest utility globally. They're a very large global utility. They operate in Latin America, in Europe, in the United States, I think even uh, maybe in, in Asia. But anyway, they were developing their own solar module installation robot that looked like a Zamboni. If you know what a Zamboni is, are you an ice yep. skater? Or no, but I know what a Zamboni is, just a big player. square thing. Yeah. yeah, it's this big square truck that cleans the ice and smooths the ice, right? Well, they had they had developed a, uh, a robot that, you know, and had a big stack of solar modules inside it, which is why it was built that way, I guess. Anyway, Luminous is taking kind of the opposite approach. They they have a small vehicle. It's like a small tank with a robotic arm attached, and they're just building their first prototype. So it's it's still very early days for Luminous as well. But um, they're going to expedite the module deployment onto the racking system, basically replacing one or two humans, um, maybe more, and getting more racking installed in less time. And then you have... TerraBase, which is doing this pop-up factory. I don't know if you've learned about that. I've seen that. I've yeah. seen that. Where they install the torque tube, the modules onto the torque tubes in a pop-up factory. I like that factory. idea. Yeah, that's cool. That's a cool idea. That's interesting. It is interesting, and we're waiting for some official feedback from TerraBase and, and companies involved in that, how that's going, because they've been kind of quiet about it, but they, they do have a large-scale project underway. So... Anyway, I, I like robots. I know that um, that you do too, John. Uh, yeah. I mean, now you have me thinking about like the coolness of bringing a factory out into the field and then doing a key chunk of the assembly with people where the machine is brought to them and they have their tools and their gear and everything. And to do, to do, you still get the fine installation hands of a rested person um, in a non-dusty atmosphere doing a consistent twist. Everything's getting a torque. You can like account for every single bolt having its torque properly done because, you know, if you have a little factory set up and if the torque tightening of your modules and your uh, components and your wires, et cetera, is the number one risk for fire or wind because that's what it is per my light reading and you can – get a uh, in-factory torquing, uh, I bet you can get better insurance costs or at least better production, lower O&M costs. Um, man, that's a cool idea. I would love to ride in a factory in the field um, uh, installation system. Man, that would be so sweet. It's a good experiment. We need to do lots of experiments. That's, yep. that's my approach. Do lots of experiments, small-scale experiments. And don't assume that you have it figured out until you get it done in the real world. That's the challenge is the real world. It's easy to do this in a laboratory or in a warehouse, but in the field, conditions are very different. Um, and that's where the, the, uh, the, the Mike Tyson quote comes in, right? Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Um, <laughs> yes. And that's what field construction is. It's getting punched in the face by by mud and rain and terrain and gophers and who knows what gophers gophers Gophers, man i'm I'm about to have a a, uh just a a data point here also on this racking stuff i'm I'm gonna have another racking company on the show i'm gonna have several racking companies on the show because i'm a geek for racking called cambridge energy out of england appropriately uh interestingly the ceo is australian and but they're targeting to compete with 5B by doing factory installation of the racking system. It is a portable tracker designed initially for the mining and remote construction industry. So you set up a, a well, you you install the racking just like 5B in a factory. It gets containerized and then you ship it to the site. You pop it up. And then you have a tracker that 
is not permanently anchored with driven piles, but it uses these toggle bolts and cables that are driven and they're considered temporary because then you just snip the cable and you can pick it all up and move it somewhere else. So this is interesting that they think that there's a big enough market for this to actually create a technology to disrupt the tracker market. So we'll see. Well, well, okay. So in Australia, a perfectly great um, solar power project that was seven years old, which was two years older than its prescribed lifetime, was decommissioned at an Australian mine. So it's mine, a mine, not a mine. It could have been a mine. There were many mines working there, Tim. But it was an Australian mine yeah. in you know in the middle of nowhere, and they decommissioned a seven-year-old plant. And some people were like, oh, no. But then the others were like, that's awesome. The project met its needs. It was valuable. I'm sure I can even find the article if you tell me. And they, it just, it met the numbers. It got its job done. And that plant, I'm certain, was decommissioned by people who resold the project and now have a perfectly functioning solar plus storage with diesel generator hookup. Or if they're really smart, Tim, they're doing what this guy's doing and they're redeploying the power plant somewhere else. Mm. And um, I don't know. So that's pretty interesting. I, uh, uh, re redeploying systems and having that uh, value. Yeah, you know, people have been trying to do that with shipping containers for the longest time. You know, deploy a city, deploy a office, deploy a home, deploy a solar power plant. It, you know, it's a it's a model. I see it every once in a while. Cool drawings for uh, factory deployable solar. Yep, yep, yeah. We 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 need more ways to make solar affordable. That's the bottom dollar here is we're trying to drive towards one cent per kilowatt hour solar energy, which makes theoretically green hydrogen economical, uh, splitting hydrogen with an electrolyzer, you know, into oxygen and hydrogen. Um, and that's something that companies like TerraBase are very focused on actually. And that's, and that's a good focus to have for society it you know cheaper renewable energy is going to be good for society um so maybe we should get into some concrete stories though about this right the energy transition um i found a story in pv magazine this morning uh let me see if i can get this on screen i haven't done this in a while grid enhancing Um, technologies a dream for energy developers i like this i like it yeah, I'm not crazy about that acronym, GETS, but Grid Enhancing Technologies, a story by mm-hmm. William Driscoll in PV Magazine USA here. And it says PJM could add 5.5 gigawatts of renewables with grid enhancing technologies. And the, I mean, this isn't complicated. That's one of the things that I like about this, John, is it's like, it's kind of staring us in the face. It's saying, yeah, we have this grid. It needs to carry a lot more juice. So what could we do to make the grid carry more juice instead of having to build a whole new grid and add a bunch of wires and poles, right? And the answer is things like smart conductors, next generation smart conductors. You know, when you're carrying thousands of volts, apparently there's different ways of constructing the conductor. And one of them is to make the core of that hollow, for example. Um, But they're, you know, Conductors have changed over the last hundred years. We don't just use the same exact construction of the copper wire that we used to use, right? And by doing so, you can get that conductor to carry a lot more energy. And so reconductoring the grid doesn't require building out new infrastructure, right? It's just putting new wires on the existing towers. That seems like a brilliant idea to me. Um, I... You know, the the only negative of this is that we can only get 5.5 gigs of capacity. Um, I'm look, that'd be great. And it's only actually, it's even better. It's not just 5.5, it's 5.5 in PJM. In PJM, yeah. Yeah. So, and the cost at that price, uh, developers to deploy 7 billion bucks of solar, let's just say that's 7 gigs of solar. Um, If it were that dollar amount, we know it's not. Uh, would be 0.1. So 0.1 billion on seven gigs is that's going to be like what? Two cents a watt? A cent a watt? Um, 
you know, one will go one, one, two, divided by seven, one, two, three. That's a uh, one point four cent, one point four two eight cents a watt, Timothy. Mm-hmm. It's not children's money. It's a hundred million dollars, but it's on seven gigs of solar. Developers would love the opportunity to have that sort of technology, but this is only going to squeeze it so far. It seems this is five point five gigs. We have two terawatts, two thousand gigs in the queues ready to go, right? And that's probably going to go to ten to twenty terawatts before the game is done. So this is a good Band-Aid, but we need a global HVDC. And global could just be super east-west, north-south on North America or the United States. All of those would be great. But these are good Band-Aids. These can get us five gigs for $100 million. Slam it. Yeah. I'm all for this. Uh, It's not the sole answer, of course. And it's – but it's it's an important upgrade, so to speak, to the approach – and uh, it's going to save money and time, right, for getting clean energy deployed. We need to triple the grid because we're electrifying transportation, uh, transportation, heavy industry, and HVAC, those three things basically, right? We're going to triple the amount of electricity we use, and so we need a more robust grid, and part of the answer is grid-enhancing technology. So thank you, William Driscoll. Good story. That's his thing. Will really likes to touch on technologies that enable greater stuff. And if you uh, scroll through Will's article history, he's written a lot about enabling solar inverters in residential projects to be a big part of the grid. And California's researched this a lot. Sunrun is probably an expert. Sonova is probably an expert in this. Um, And Tesla as well. But I, I would... You know, Sonova has uh, put some smart stuff out there. Sunrun has been doing it for a while. And, and um, you know, get yourself a Sonnen battery. And I, th- I think the, I think you could have a, a pretty cool grid-run house with today's gear. Why do you uh, like Sonnen? Sonnen is my favorite home battery technology just because they've been around so long. And they were having batteries as a VPP mm. before the word VPP was VPP. How's that? <laughs> yeah, I, I would agree there that they are forward on the VPP. It's interesting that that brand has kind of fallen, though, in in dominance, so to speak, in the U.S. <clears throat> it's, yeah, it, Tesla's uh, local, you know. Yeah, I think, you know, Franklin has kind of burst onto the scene uh, in a big way, I would say. Um, Solar Edge, I mean, all of the inverter companies now have their own storage products which I think is, you know, makes sense, right? They already make inverters. You need an inverter when you install a battery. But um, Listen, Sonnen is um, priced stronger than the market was for just a solar plus storage item. It was a premium item from a German manufacturer. Mm. And they were big and cool before everything exploded. Maybe they'll always be a niche product, maybe They'll always be European. Shell bought them and then sold them. Um, right. So Why on earth would Shell sell a battery company? Uh, they're trying to figure out a, ba- a, um, a mineral play. A, um, they're trying to figure out a, mm. uh, a way to extend their expertise. And they're trying. You know, They want to spend some cash. But the returns on investment of oil are just so high. That they keep, I think, in my light readings of them, the return on oil, yeah. investment of oil is so high that to yeah. buy normal hardware manufacturing products in a world where China is complex in their game, not looking for just return on investment yeah. in manufacturers, it's very challenging to be a manufacturer of solar components and be financially viable um, it, these days, which is in all of our benefit. Nonetheless, it's challenging. So. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm cool with it. Uh, people investing in hardware, different conversation. All right, let's move on. You found a story right. in Canary Media written by your favorite uh, author, Eric Wessoff. The biggest solar plus storage project in the U.S. came online. What's the story? Well, I mean, it's just a big project with multiple um, pieces put together, I believe. Technically, you got this story, Tim. So I did? You know the oh. better details. Yeah, yeah. It is a good story. 
Yeah, um, uh, it's a little it's a little dated little now, but this story is uh, this story happened in January, and and uh, they installed two million solar panels made by First Solar in uh, yep. from Ohio, right? American yes. solar panels, one of the few true soup to nut solar panel manufacturers in the United States. That is changing. Q cells will be the next to uh, turn flip that switch, I think. But um, and this is in Kern County, where a lot of big solar and now storage projects are happening. Batteries by LG Chem, uh, Samsung, and BYD. So, so many batteries that they had to use three different uh, flavors of battery, which uh, well, says a lot. Well, it's a little more complex. This project is being built in phases, isn't it? Or is it not? Like, um, I believe there's multiple phases in this project. And... 875 megawatts of solar and look oh so the next paragraph this is a this is what interests me most about this company and i'd like to learn the project provides power to more than 10 customers or off takers utilities cities and it's complex and then there's multiple phases where it's being built and so i'm wondering if these phases have to do with the battery or if it's you know just how this project's come together if anything the financial patience that was put out by this group when they developed this is amazing. And one thing that I think is super interesting about this project is I think this group started building everything and developing it on their own with their own cash, knowing and believing they had a customer coming for it. Like they put out a pitch that they were going to try to be a merchant solar power plant and they talked about it and maybe they got a bunch of PPAs before they finished because people started calling in on them really hard saying hey I see you got a plant let me come buy some of your electricity and they're like ah I'll sell it to you for a premium in this scary market when inflation's high something and they're um, it's a cool project it's um yeah thanks eric for writing it yeah did you see eric visited um in his twitter account he visited the oxen solar panel manufacturing facility in California. Recently? Yeah, very recently. Oh. Last month or two. Could have been a month or two. Because they've written about that, you know, historically too, right? But what's yeah, the before, what's the update? Oh the update is that there was a um there was a uh, what what do they call when they stack modules on them? Um a pallet. The pallet had moved across the empty desolate grass-strewn, rat-infested back porch, <laughs> and that absolutely nothing was happening in the oxen facility, Timothy uh, Montague. Yeah. And I just wanted to point that out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because that's very important. So it's, what's, anyway. What's bizarre about that company is they have a partnership with Nucor, uh, the huge steel company, uh, to provide solar panels for a Nucor, what Nucor calls a solar structure. Um so let's talk about um, this story, which is on I got your all kinds of stuff. It's on your blog, I guess. Um, yes. Well, this one's on my blog because I couldn't find the original source image. I know who gate who made it. Bloomberg increases. Let's see what the story is, though. Bloomberg increases yeah. solar projections to 575 gigawatts deployed in 2024, a 30% jump over 2023. Okay. So that's. The image is really all that matters. It's just a big, pretty chart with a big, pretty number, 575. And 575 is a really big gigawatt number to be deployed in 2023 um, or 24, pardon. And it's based on 444 being deployed in 23. So that means that we globally grew from 52 to 44, which is like 70%, 252 minus 444 equals divided by 252. 76.1% 76.1% growth in 24 in 23 versus 22. 252 to 444, massive. Yeah. And now we just popped another 30. Um, in private conversation, it was suggested to me from Bloomberg, New Energy Finance, Jenny Chase specifically, that the whale number, they have a range of expectations. Their upper bound is like 675 gigs. And 675 is, I don't know, it's just a big number. That's our that's our window. That's what I'm optimistically sales pitching myself into, that we're going to be above 600 gigs. Uh, I also saw a projection that says if we hit 600, we're following a trajectory that's really massive. So 
Oh, it's that one. So if you click on that article right there in the bottom link right there, this is an article I wrote for PV Mag. And if you scroll down a bit, you're going to see a chart that starts at 600 uh, gigs. So that's Bloomberg earlier this year. They were at 413. That's our growth. That's exponential. That's the IEA. Keep going. That's well here. You know what? Scroll up real quick. The IEA says 600. No, down one image now. Down three. One more. One more. The IEA says to meet global warming goals, we need 633 gigs a year. We could hypothetically meet the goals that have been set out for solar power from the IEA's perspective to be useful to humanity in electrifying and cleaning electricity this year. Seven, six years early. Solar could be pulling its weight, so to say. What is the blue so, in this graph? Wind. Okay. So, so there's that. Uh, now, go to the next chart. This is this gentleman, you, and a, a, a part of a very smart group, the DR Dalmer Financial Risk Management, and there's a university involved too. They put out a good paper. Says that if you look at that 2024 number, that's actually uh, 600 um, new uh, gigawatts being deployed. And if we follow along that path, that leads us toward three tera, almost four terawatts being deployed in the year 20, uh, uh, 2030, which is like, you know, this Uber growth projected that's constant exponentially doing 30%, 40% a year. And, uh, 600 is just a cool number. If we hit 600, we got that IEA thing. We got this little projection. These are the things that excite me at night, Tim. I like to think about solar projections. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you, man. All right. I, I'm, All I right. mean, the energy transition is is a very good thing. It it's 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 a feel good and and kudos to all the energy professionals who are you know doing this lift on a day to day basis. I I. I'm here to be a catalyst and help you guys go further, faster, basically, right? And it's very important. We have to keep in mind that completing the energy transition, getting the economy to net zero, okay, where we're not adding CO2 to the atmosphere. Today, it's at 420 ppm. Uh, in 1970, it was 300. So we have to remember that net zeroing is important, but it's only 40 gigatons of pollution that we're taking out of the economy. There's another trillion tons in the sky. So I want my my visionary energy professional listeners to really focus on that. How do we get that trillion tons out of the atmosphere in parallel as we clean the grid? Okay. And Peter Fikowski is my shining light so far. He's the dude who's done the analysis and, and written a, a lucid conclusion, which is ocean iron fertilization and permaculture of seaweed. Uh, you do those two things, basically growing massive amounts of biomass in the ocean that, that you that then let sink and it gets stashed there for thousands or millions of years. I've seen that a few times talked about. I'm and interested I, in experiments. Yeah. Yeah. There's some small experiments being done with OIF, ocean iron fertilization. Mount Pinatubo is the, the, the great example of a natural experiment that was done in the 90s. Mount Pinatubo exploded. That's a volcano in the Philippines. And CO2 levels globally flatlined uh, because of all the, the iron that Pinatubo pumped into the ocean. So it works. There's also um, the other experiment that we're doing on ourselves, um, shipping. We removed sulfur from ships, and now the regions where, these, where there was heavy shipping, uh, North Atlantic, I believe, is one of the places that are constantly talked about. We're seeing the North Atlantic anomaly, which is the temperature of the ocean, increase faster <clears throat> Because there's no sulfur in the atmosphere blocking. Mm. And so the pollution was giving us a temporary respite, sort of kind of hiding its effects yeah. of climate warming by saying, you know what? Well, not really. It was just literally blocking light. So I guess the pollution was doing one thing. In order to like hack at you one way, 
and cause climate change in one way, it also slowed climate change in another way. So it's it's very interesting the way the atmosphere works. Uh, it's a yeah. So yeah, pour some iron in the ocean if that works. If we have a cheap uh, way to hack and do some cool solutions, please. Well, that's the on. that's the amazing thing about Fikowski's analysis is it only takes a billion to two billion dollars a year between now and twenty forty to remove all of that trillion tons of carbon. Oh, hey, Chris Letman. Good to see you. Uh, and Mark James, good to see you. Um, but, but anyway, check out peterfakowski.com. We'll move on. Um, you and, and you should be careful in the doc, John, about ordering things now because we're not going to get to everything, which is, you know, our common problem. But let's yeah. talk about this story by Ryan Kennedy. I mean, this is, this is really good news. Solar and battery storage make up 81% of new U.S. electric generating capacity in 2024 yes. um that's that's a really impressive statistic yep. like you see this just staring us in the face right the opportunity has arrived the energy transition is happening uh, at a pace but what's the story it's this is a report from the eia and it projects new capacity being deployed in the country in 2024 and um there's actually a net negative on fossil fuels because there's coal and gas that are coming on and off. And I wrote an article separately on that. But uh, this, yeah, oh, this is great. So this is uh, uh, solar on the AC side, and this is only utility scale. So 36.4 gigawatts AC, 43.45 gigawatts DC, and this is batteries, uh, gigawatts, and um, probably half of that is four gigawatt hours, maybe three quarters the other big chunk is going to be Texas, which is one to two hour. So maybe this averages two and a half hours. So, you know, 45-ish gigawatts. And already what exists in the U.S. is like 15.5 gigawatts of battery. So the cool, a really cool thing, look at December, like when everything's coming online. But um, a really cool thing is that uh, we're almost going to double the already deployed capacity of batteries that are in the United States. We're almost going to double it in one year. So we're going to take all of existence and we're going to go, okay, let's double it. And that's this year. Yep. That's pretty cool. I mean, California is already doing awesome things, but they have a massive trough of cheap daytime electricity. Batteries are about to change what can be thought of as is possible with batteries. California's Kaiso power grid is going to pound, man, and I'm going to cover it next week, but I, I'm reading the publication out, and we could cover it on Utility Dive. California just approved a 2030 plan of like 55 gigs of new capacity, and there's going to be so many batteries that are going to hit the grid hardcore that it's we're just going to see the daytime thing in California evolve very quickly, very differently. As, as, as the battery pundits have been saying, is where I think it's going to roll out. There's going to be some nuance, but as the battery pundits have been saying that solar can batteries can eat the daytime duck curve, it's it's we're gonna now see uh we're gonna see the results of the cooking. Right now the pot is being bubbled. The projects are already signed, they're being deployed, they're in the EIA, high probability of being constructed. This is a high probability. So we're in the midst of the transition happening this year. And the next article. And I put these in order for you to pick them, Tim. So I was conscious of my article ordering. Um, I care about our show, Tim. We got to take care of our people. Um, we have hundreds of subscribers to this show. I think you said over 500. That's kind of cool. Um, but in the United States, we're going to see over 50 gigs DC of solar being deployed. At least 8, probably 10 gigs of small scale. And 43 to 45 DC of utility scale, as we just saw. And that's just straight solar. We're breaking 50 gigs deployed this year, Tim. And that's sort of floated under the radar. You know, the most the United States has ever deployed ever is like 60-some gigs of capacity in the early 2000s. We're going to pass that next year. This year, we might even touch it. You never know. We could get a little squeaky uh, commercial, industrial, residential bounce. Who knows? Yep. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we did 33 gigawatts last year, right? 
Yeah, 18.6 utility on the AC, which is probably like 25 DC, and yeah. like eight residential commercial. So yeah, yeah, 33, something like that. So, yeah. yeah. So this is a healthy clip up, the, this prediction going to 45. Um, 45 utility. Yeah. We, dub- we doubled. The IEA says that we're doubling utility scale capacity mm-hmm. this year to next. And that's pretty cool. We're d- and that's it right there. You can see it. You can see in the 23, you see that light green? And you see in the 24, the light green that's forecast. Yeah. This is this is the same chart just a couple weeks earlier than Ryan's. I was looking at different the document when it came out. Ryan saw the EIA press release. But that's utility scale going from like 18 gigs to 36. That's doubling. That's pretty cool. And then at the bottom, you can see the coal and the gas that's retiring. The get the coal is the black, the gas is the brown. Yep. Yep. So fifty plus gigs, dude. We are in the midst of a of a growth phase. All right. Well, that's. Um, I hope the IEA is right. I, I'm. You know. We, we, we got to make the transition. All we need to do, John, is deploy the technology that we have today. We don't need major innovations in solar or wind technology. And uh, we, ha- we have the technology. We just need to get it in the wild, and we can completely net zero the economy. And I think so. We just have to remember, net zeroing is not the answer. It's not the holy grail. We could have runaway climate change with a net zero economy. Could. It's happening. Yep. We gotta take some out. All right. What's All next? Right. Um you want to just see a pretty picture? Are, Very oh, easy to Oh, you found a project of the week. Smile. It's just pretty. Wow. It's very pretty. Yeah, see? Look at that. See? <laughs> I can't even see it, but I just saw your reaction. Everybody, it's a good pretty picture. That's this really cool. Choice. You gotta like this. Yeah. Uh, no, the half cut modules aren't real. The half cut modules aren't real. They uh, they sh- shaved them up or something. I don't know the exact process, uh-huh. but sure. it was it was shared on Twitter. And yeah. um, this must be in in Europe because uh, it's in Switzerland, German, I believe. Yeah, it might be Switzerland. Uh, I'm not positive. No, it's not Swedish. It's church. Well, Switzerland isn't Sweden. Where, where? Oh, sorry, Switzerland. Yeah, yeah it might be Switzerland. Different um, Germanic tribe. What? What? Where? Where? Where is this project? Uh, yeah, I looked at some of the stuff. I chatted with the person on Twitter when I shared their image, and they got a you know if you translate it to English somewhere, there's gonna button, there's gonna be a button for English for us uh, non-speakers of the tongue. But uh, it's just pretty. Look at that. They they filled up the whole thing. They you know in Europe, uh, I've seen that they have a different roofing construction structure. They um. They have this frame that's laid out in wood, you know, your your roof structure, and they're framing. They lay – instead of laying wood planks on it, they're allowed to lay the solar panels right on the wood planks, and the solar panels mm-hmm. become fully the roofing material. Mm-hmm. And there's – and so you don't have to build a piece of wood and then – uh, a layering of various materials to build up to your roof. Yeah, so check that out. Yeah. That was the before. Yeah. This is a cool structure. I like the angle. That roof is a little eaten up. All right? Now, go to the after and let our fine folks ding. And, of course, they have the bright sunlight, so they pick the best day to show the after. But it's really – I mean, the structure looks better with solar. And that's what I said And uh, when I initially retweeted it. And everybody was like, you know what? It's not even real. That's a computer image. I'm like, yeah, whatever. And uh, <laughs> it is better looking with the solar roof. I, I have to agree. Uh, so, you know, they're going from probably clay tile to solar. And uh, yeah, I, I look forward to this kind of roofing integrated solar solution coming to the United States. It'll, it'll be 10 years, uh, but it'll get there. And it's, it's a good thing. So thank you. Good project of the week. 
I wish I could tell our listeners uh, where where we found that story, but I could not interpret any of the information on that. So, um, <laughs> say la vie. All right, we got time for a couple more stories. Um, Ari plus. Sorry, Tim, I didn't see you there. I was coming back from my vacation. I was exhausted, and I'm a terrible communicator. All of that. <laughs> I went I, all the way I to Boston, and I did not I get to see John Weaver. That was I that know, was that I'm was sorry. the only disappointment from the trip. I had a good trip myself. I didn't actually get to go to the show floor after it was live. I had to leave the day of the opening uh, to go sail in a regatta in Florida, but. Come on. I, I came in on Sunday, on Super Bowl Sunday, and was there all day Monday. I took a a wonderful workshop with uh, PKD, um, Peter Kelly Duttweiler, on hydrogen and green hydrogen. Cool. So cool. we're going to be having PKD on the show in the coming weeks. I think in about a month we're going to have him on the show to talk about that. And um, But you went to the show, and you saw yes. some concrete. I saw some. It was a cool, cool ballast system. Um it was concrete, you know. It's uh, I'm actually I asked them for a bid for product because we have a couple of roofs that we're looking at, and I just thought the ballast was kind of cool and creative. We get rid of all these metal components. We do have these heavy ass, heavy, heavy, sorry, heavy bricks, um, and you have to have the right roof that can deal with it. And maybe they can make some smaller ones that are lighter and more refined in the math. But yeah, so you so cool. the story is called. On the floor at RE Plus Northeast 2024, concrete racking, no caulk needed, basketball, and more. What, what's the deal? Tell us what, what you saw and what is this racking system? Scroll down one more pic- picture. And what I saw was ah. coolness right there. The only metal piece are the clips that hold the modules down. Yeah. And, and why is this advantageous? Well, for a lot of roofs where you don't do a penetration and you have an available collateral load available. Uh, that's a weight pounds per square foot where you can put some stuff on your roof. You have uh, such an obtuse way of describing this. Yeah. You're replacing the ballast blocks with a, 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 a block based racking solution, right? Yeah. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. A lot of people don't know what ballast means. So the bricks, the bricks holding down your solar are now, also holding down your solar. But is the system overall the same weight then? Uh, uh, so you, you 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 go from, you know, six pounds per square foot to six pounds per square foot. Is that the value proposition? And you're using less metal and therefore it's cheaper? All, all those things combined. Uh, concrete, though, is a expensive product. Um, it is? Shipping, moving it. Uh, well, it's not like super cheap, but it is, it is cheap. It's relatively cheap. Aluminum's cheap, too. But there are some costs associated with it, moving it. It's pretty heavy. Um, it's the same as moving the ballast, I guess. Um, but, yeah, I just like it for simplicity as well. It's fewer components, like massively fewer numbers of components. Yeah, it says it reduces the use of aluminum by 95%. So that's cool. Well, um, I wrote that first off. So, you know. But, uh, that was your assessment? That was my guesstimation, yes. Okay. Yes, uh, because there's literally one metal component. It could be more than 95%. could be like 98 Yeah. So I like the product. It's cool. It's it's just – it was neat. I just thought it was cool. That was it. Uh, so this is a – and if you go back up to the top image on the article, scroll all the way up real fast, you'll see um, the leftovers when solar recycle uh, rips apart solar panels. Yeah. And that's what I thought was neat. Silicon, plastic – Copper glass. Those are the four main components. That's like 98%, 99%, Something like that. Some yeah. big number is that right there. And so I just thought that was cool. I stacked them all close. I took a very artsy picture so you could read the top. And uh, Yeah. And most of that can be repurposed into new solar modules. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the way it works. So some ballast was neat. That's a, a racking material, a racking attachment. You attach the... Leg to the roof, you start drilling in the lag bolt, which is what holds the L foot to the roof, which holds the panels. And instead of you having to squish stuff under there, this puts out some sort of non-hardening material. Some, it's probably like what my editor was saying, bituminous, you know, just like just like roofing material, just like shingles, yeah. and it goos down into semi-liquid the roof. sealant. 
Yes. Uh, um, yes. So it's a way to uh, modify the the standard practice for this is for you know mostly residential, right? Sloped shingle roofing. Sloped, um, sloped shingle. I did a hundred kW sloped shingle roof recently. Yeah. But what's what well, I don't get it. It's like it this, just saves caulking. It saves a step. It automates a particular step of the process. Okay. And uh make sure you have good material on every leg going down in there. I bet you this would work really great if you could put it on top of a a wood roof like or uh not have to go through the shingles because then you could really seal, seal it perfectly. So so this is a mid clamp, but a mid clamp that sits between rows. So you know you have you have a big long row, and between each module you have a mid clamp, and then at the end you have an end clamp, and that's how you put them together. But this is designed to sit between two rows, so that the row above only needs one rail to hold it down. So instead of having two rails to hold down each solar panel, mm-hmm. it wants to sit in between two big chunks of panels. And let the top rail skip a rail, and it product's called skip rail. And so it's a it's a mid clamp project that sits between modules and connects two separate rows together. So you can skip some metal and skip a whole bunch of attachments to the same roof. So you can knock down your attachments. Why didn't someone think of this sooner? Well, wind. That's that's my logic. And <laughs> well, know, yeah, I I, I mean it. This is just uh, I'm 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 a little mind boggled that is this really a thing or is this pushing yeah. the boundaries too much? Or, maybe maybe <laughs> um, that's a good question to ask. Yes, sir. That's smart. <laughs> yep, yep. Skip a rail. So, okay, and then rail. and then we're looking at what here? Anchor Solar. So the main Solix Solix Eleven. Um, Anchor. The Solix. main reason I posted this posted this is because Anchor is kind of new in big batteries. They're a gadget company that makes awesome connectors. Uh, Charging cables. Of, yes, very good at making things. And I read an article on them, and I was very impressed by them, by their owner and their logic and how they modeled their business structure. And I was like, well, all that sounds like a good, solid business. And they also do batteries now. And so I was like, oh, Anchor. They make big batteries. They used to make little batteries. And I bought their little charging units So prior and you know they always seem to work well so yeah so i was just it was just so cool. they're getting like, in the resi battery space uh yep. with the lithium phosphate is it not lithium, lithium iron phosphate i i well it's not lithium cobalt nickel which right. is what the it's not that um yeah. and i don't think it's an i guess it's an iron phosphate Maybe must be lfp uh because that is the most common uh form for you know that's yeah. the most common chemistry for stationary storage Probably. Yeah. I mean, yes, it is. And uh, that's what I assumed it. So um, this is a company that will come out and do some quick scans of your hardware. And their specialty is saying, hey, uh, we looked at these solar panels and they are good or they are not good. And Mm -hmm. here's why. And they give you a deliverable that you can use in a discussion with an insurance company or if you have a conversation with your module manufacturer, you get some modules that look a little funky. You're like, hey, I did a spot check-in of modules. I found these. And his story, and I liked it, he said, listen, once the module buyer knows that you have a guy like me showing up to go through each module and spec it out, then they guarantee, they work really hard to give you good modules. And I was like, oh, that's very interesting. So, so it's um, an EL imaging service. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, he takes and, pictures. And EL stands for what? Electroluminance, I believe. Yeah. So it's a standard test that that you want to have done, uh, usually in the factory. Honestly, right? Uh, Probably to pick out modules that are defective. And um, but so are they using uh, like machine learning or something? How are how are what what is new about their service? Because there's many companies that provide that EL scanning service. I don't know. It was new to me that he was doing it and that he existed oh. and that he was at RE plus on the floor. Oh, that's what that was. I just thought it was cool. Yeah, you know, we got two hundred and forty ish booths, and I walked by, and yeah, that was my cool learning conversation. You know, maybe it triggered in me because I bought modules and I had four, five, six I had to replace 
couple that were manufacturer defect, no, a couple that we think were manufacturer issues, and a couple that we know were ours. So it made me think. And then what he said is um, the importance of a clear module acceptance provision clause in mm-hmm. your contract. If you're a big buyer, you know this term, but you you need to have a good module acceptance provision clause in your contract. So thought yeah. that was interesting terminology to learn. So it was a good conference. I liked the conference, uh, and I don't know. It was small. I was uh, I could consume the whole thing in one day. I was only there for a day. I heard there were four thousand people. Um, yep, which is a good number. Uh, you know these these regional conferences keep getting bigger and bigger. But, yeah, yeah, that's cool. Uh, I like the regionals. Are uh, we have three regional events? Let's talk about events, John. Um, sure. We have three regional events in Chicago this year. Uh, in May, May 20th to 22nd is the Midwest Solar Expo. If you'd like to sponsor the expo, reach out to me. I uh, am securing sponsors for the Midwest Solar Expo. And I also am working with the Illinois Solar Energy Association on um, recruiting members to that organization. So if you're interested in working in Illinois, reach out to me. Um, but then in July, we have the Solar Farm Summit which is an agrivoltaics conference organized by Mr. Bell. And then we have RE Plus Midwest in November. So three major conferences in Chicago this year. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful thing because I don't have to go very far. What's your next event? Uh, probably RE Plus in Anaheim. Yeah. I'm like, a, I mean, I might go to that New York one that the SIA does, finance one in um, uh, March. But I'm still kind of getting life back to normal. Um, and uh, like next weekend, I'm going to visit a project. And so I got to, you know, be cool with the amount of time that I give to the world. And uh, so that. But, uh, but yeah, I, Mark it's James, that and then RE+. Mark James asked a question, which is a good question for me, probably not a very good question for you. Uh, oh. and, and Mark's question is, apart from this channel, are there any other YouTube channels that talk about commercial solar that – uh, you could recommend. And Mark, unfortunately, I cannot recommend another channel uh, that talks about commercial solar. There are many uh, channels that talk about residential solar, but uh, commercial is somewhat neglected, I think, in the YouTube space. Uh, speaking of YouTube, check out all of our content at cleanpowerhour.com. And we're on audio and video, so give us a rating and a review on Apple or Spotify. Those are the two platforms that garner 90-plus percent of listenership. And then check out our YouTube channel. Just Google it. But there's a link at cleanpowerhour.com to the YouTube channel also. And connect with me on LinkedIn. I love connecting with our listeners. And if you're coming to Illinois, I want to I want to know you. I'm I'm uh, I'm an expert on the Illinois market. And if you're an EPC, for example, coming to Illinois, because there is a burst of construction work happening in 2024. So developers are actively looking for construction companies who can build stuff in Illinois. If you're doing that, reach out to me. I can help you find resources in Illinois. But how can our listeners find you, Mr. John Weaver? Commercialsolarguy.com. That's our website. We just kind of changed it around a little bit to modernize it and clean it up so we can update pages better. And uh, I'm also on LinkedIn. John Fitzgerald Weaver, and um, but most of the news that I I have a new technique news uh, t- Tim of collecting news instead of posting it on Twitter primarily I'm now posting on my website all these little snippets that I find good idea and then I'm gonna set up my website to send it out to all the places that matter so I'm gonna build a Fediverse website which hooks up with Mastodon and uh, and the bird, the new bird one, blue sky, and then feeds it to Twitter. So yeah. it's going to be my, my technique. And next week on the clean power hour live on the 29th of February, we're going to have Scott Graybill, who is the CEO and founder of a company called Kalux, which is developing, um, perovskite solar that will be layered on top of traditional um, crystalline PV technology. So looking forward to interviewing Scott on our live show. I got to meet him at, oh, I can't remember now. It was one of the regionals I was at in the last couple of months, but um, very interesting. And 
So perovskites are coming to the solar market. Like they have pilots in, uh, in, in, in the ground. So it's, it's real. And it's just a question of how quickly the greater solar market will adopt this technology. With that, I'll say thanks for being here and we'll see you next week. Thanks so much, John. The Clean Power Hour is brought to you by CPS America, the maker of North America's number one three-phase string inverter. With over six gigawatts shipped in the U.S., the CPS America product lineup includes three-phase string inverters ranging from 25 to 275 kW. Their flagship inverter, the CPS 250-275, is designed to work with solar plants ranging from 2 megawatts to 2 gigawatts. The 250-275 pairs well with CPS America's exceptional data communication, controls, and energy storage solutions. Go to chintpowersystems.com to find out more.